The uh, reading today is Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Thanks, Chris. Um, before we start on the sermon, um, we are serving Bob and Vicki Burris by watching their dog. So um, they are going to bark if they're outside. And now they decided it would be much fun to wrestle right next to me. So um, bear with one another's weaknesses as we serve Bob Burris by dog sitting. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes if they interrupt. Um, have, have mercy, please. Uh, the second thing is, I just wanted to comment, you know, Ramey pointed out at the beginning of the service to us the word behold and what that means because it came up in a song. And I would just like to point out something that, that came up in the song that just kind of got me thinking is we sang about the God of angel armies. Um, and uh, what the author of that song is translating is the, the idea, Lord of hosts. The word hosts means a large army, a, a giant army. And so our God is the God, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. He's, he's got these angel armies around him. And think about what that means that God commands this army. Um, one angel in, in Second Kings, one angel showed up at a city and wiped out an army over 100,000 people overnight by himself. So angels are powerful powerful armies. If one angel could do that, imagine what a thousand angels could do. Um, they, they are just that powerful. And yet, the angels can't resist their commander. They can't overthrow their commander. Satan tried to do that, and he's been frustrated ever since. He's never been able to overthrow the commander. That's why God is the, the God of angel armies. That's why he is the Lord of hosts, is because he's in charge of them, and they can't defeat him. And so this is the God that we serve, is this God who is that powerful. Um, you think of how powerful an angel is. He's over myriads of angels, and, and they bow to him because he is so powerful. So that just that struck me as we were singing that song of what it means that he is the Lord of hosts. We hear it often, but it, it just is wonderful to, to reflect on that because it shows who God is, uh, what it means that he's the angel or the Lord of uh, angel armies. Um, the God who is over those things. It just, ah, our God is wonderful. I just wanted to share that with you. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at, our, at the word this morning. Uh, Lord, um, I pray that, uh, that you would be with Bob today as he's serving the church in Liberia, as he's teaching pastors um, how to read and understand the Bible, how to present it to people, how to, how to preach it well. Uh, Lord, care for him, watch over him, and, um, and make him successful. Give him uh, um, a real 
impact on the church there. Uh, thank you that he's he's serving the global church in that way. And uh, we pray for Vicki as she's out of town, that you would uh, care for her and bring her back safely. And uh, for the dogs, Lord, maybe they could quiet down a little bit and uh, not interrupt the service. So uh, by your mercy, Lord, thank you for the Burrises and for what you're doing in and through them. And uh, Father, we pray again for the country of uh, Myanmar. Myanmar. Um, since we have been there a number of years ago, um, and to see them back in the same situation they were then, it's, it's distressing. Uh, Lord, I've heard that there have been a couple of deaths from uh, the police crackdown, but Lord, the resistance is strong, and the people are demanding um, the, the freedom that their constitution uh, grants them. So Lord, would you be with them as, as they protest, as they resist? But Lord, I pray especially for your church in Myanmar, that you would help them to be that third voice between um, the government and the people. Lord, may they be the church, uh, your ambassadors there. And so uh, give them strength and wisdom. Um, think of my friend, uh, Ronald, and uh, the, the work that he's doing. Um, please, uh, please protect him and, and use him for your glory, we pray there. Uh, Father, we wanna pray for the end of COVID. Um, we pray that you bring this disease to a conclusion soon. Um, I've heard uh, some promising reports that we may reach population immunity by somewhere between spring and summer. Uh, Lord, that uh, this recent surge may be generating a lot of antibodies in a lot of people. The, the rollout of the vaccines might be generating antibodies in people. And, and so, Lord, we pray that you'd bring this to a conclusion. And Father, it is our desire that uh, we would be able to meet and worship on Easter Sunday in, in person in our facility. And uh, Lord, we, we boldly come before the throne of grace and, and ask in Christ's name that you would grant us that ability, Lord, that you would curb this disease in this area to the point where it would be wise and safe and caring for our neighbors to do that. So uh, Lord, would you grant our request, we ask. And uh, Lord, um, even in the midst of, of pandemic and political upheaval and, and, and turmoil in our, our culture, um, Lord, we, we know that sometimes you have to upset things in order to bring about revival. You have to get people out of their, their comfort zones and their, their familiarity to begin to see things differently. And so, Lord, I pray that you're using all the things that have been going on in America, but in the West in general, uh, throughout the globe, Lord, to spark revival. And Father, I pray that you would begin with us in our church. Lord, you often begin revivals with your people. And so would you bring that about in us um, here in the Antelope Valley? Uh, Lord, then would you open the eyes and hearts of many people to come to trust you? So Father, please work to that end. We pray that that's part of your purpose in, um, in creating a pandemic and allowing our political system to be in upheaval like this. Is uh, Lord, that we trust and we know that all things are in your hands, including those. So please bring revival, spark revival. Send your spirit, we ask. And Lord, we need your spirit now as we turn to your word. He wrote it. He's given it to us for our instruction. And so, Lord, we appeal to you. Holy Spirit, would you show us what this means? Apply it to our hearts and minds. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So um, this really kind of brings to an end uh, what Paul has been talking about with, as far as us living together. Um, there, there's some things that kind of bookend this. Uh, the, the idea, though, what we, what we arrive at at the end of Paul's discussion really is the glory of being with each other. 
That's, that's where he goes with all of this, is it's the glory of being with each other. And so as we look at this section, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2, uh, he's going to kind of reiterate again what we're called to live like. It, it touches on what we've gone before, but it, he kind of brings it to a, a really sharp point. So 1 and 2 is what we're called to live like. Verses 3 and 4 is what model do we have to live like that? How, how can we do that? How will we, we be able to achieve that? Um, and then verses 5 through 7 Really, Paul points to the results of our living in this way that he's called us to. So it's the glory of being together, what we're called to live like, what model we have to live like that, and what the results of our living that way are. So let's take a look here. Verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So that phrase, our obligation, or, or we have an obligation, that's actually fronted. That's the very first word in the sentence. And when, when in, in Greek, you can move thing, words around in sentences a little bit more fluidly than you can in English. But when that word is at the beginning, and it is an imperative, it's a command to do this, to owe this person. Um, when it's in that position, it really is kind of pushed to the front in a literal sense and it makes it what's the most important thing. We have an obligation and we're not allowed to ignore or, or, or downplay that obligation. We have an obligation to care for the failings of the weak. And that really is what Paul had said in, in uh, chapter 13. Do you remember that? He said, oh, no one, anything. It's the same word, obligation and oh, it's the same Greek word. It's just a different form of it. In 13.8, he said, no, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul is, is going back to that theme. He never really departed from that theme of love, of what it means to have uh, love be genuine and real. Um, and so it, this obligation that we have, uh, what we said earlier when we looked at this, oh, no one anything, was we said, this is one of those debts that you would never, should never feel that you have paid is to love one another. So you should never come to this and say, well, I care for these people in my church, but boy, you know, I've given them enough and, and that should be enough. Um, that is a debt that, that is the debt you will always owe to the other, is to constantly love them, to continue to love them. So he says, uh, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Um, for some reason, when I thought of the failings, I, I, that sounds really negative to me. It sounds almost like a sin, like saying, bear with the sins of the weak. But that is not what it means. Uh, the word actually is weakness or illness is, is kind of where it comes from. So it is those things that the weak in faith really have a struggle with. Um, it doesn't necessarily always mean weakness or illness. It's used in different ways. But it is those, these failings are these things that the weak have not matured in. And so Paul says that we should, we have an obligation to bear those, to carry those, that we should care for that weaker brother or sister in faith so much that we feel like we're picking up their burden and putting it on our shoulders and carrying it with us. That's what he means with to bear, to bear with. Um, and in Matthew 18, 8, 17, Jesus is said to bore our, he had bore our diseases, uh, it's the same word. He, he took the diseases, he took the, the weakness, the sin on himself and carried it for us. And so what Paul is telling us here is when we hit, live in this community where we're caring for each other, the ones who are strong are obliged. They owe it to the ones who are weaker in faith 
to, to put their weakness on their shoulders and carry it with them. And, and he says that we're supposed to do that and not to please ourselves. Um, it might be fun, or it might seem like it would be fun to bring in somebody who's weak in faith so that you can argue with them and feel superior over them. But that's exactly what Paul is telling us not to do. You are to bear with the failings of the weak and not please yourself. Now think about not pleasing yourself. That means that there are people in the church who are difficult to get along with because they have something that they're really uppity about. And, and Paul says that we have to bear that, which it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, help carry their groceries. It sounds like put on your shoulders and carry it with you and to not please yourself. In other words, this will not be satisfying sometimes. This will not be the first thing that you would want to do is bear with this person's weakness. But we have to do it in order to not please ourselves. Um, that is, don't look at this and say, well, here's an opportunity for me to feel better about myself as I serve this person. You might. You might feel better. You probably should feel better. But that isn't the, the primary driving factor before it. Um, so don't bring them in in the context that Paul's talking in order to ridicule or feel superior to them. By contrast, what Paul says next is, he says, not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor. So what we're looking at there is we're saying um, you have to kind of win the favor of or make them glad. And um, the context here shows that the neighbor is, is in the church. Earlier we said neighbor was in general, but the context here makes it pretty clear this neighbor of yours is the one in your church. And, uh, and it's the person in the church that might be difficult to love or difficult to serve. Now, when Paul says to please your neighbor, and I said that it has the idea of win the favor of or make them glad, we're not talking about just flattery here, um, where you're saying, um, oh, you know, you're really nice and I like you a lot and, you know, kind of roll your eyes and, and, you know, behind their back or something like that. What he's saying is he says to please your neighbor for his good and to build him up. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking the weight, we're feeling the weight of this person's scruple about eating or alcohol or days or whatever it is. We're bearing it and not rolling our eyes and biting our tongue, but in love. And then we're working, actively working for their good. We want them to not be stuck there, to not feel like you know they're, they're in control of the church because they have this thing. You bear with it, but you're also doing it for their good. This is where we say, okay, that weak person, it's not ideal for them to be weak in the faith. That, that is not the state in which God wants them to be. It's the reality of where they're at. But as we bear with them, as we bear their burdens and we love them, we're working for their good. We're, we're looking to their benefit. How can we help this person? Rather than how can I feel better about myself in the church? Uh, Dan this morning was talking from First uh, Peter about elders, and uh, sometimes um, in some churches you'll see somebody who is very successful in business or something like that, and they feel like they should be in charge because, well, I'm in charge at work. Um, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe that's not for your benefit. Um, you may be strong at work, but weak in the faith, and it would be disastrous if we put you in charge. So how about if we help shepherd you? How about if we help bring you along? So what, what Paul is saying here is he says, don't please yourself, but please your neighbor. And he said, he puts it in the context of to do them good and to build them up. So what he's saying is not 
you know, just whatever they want, do it. There are certain things where we're going to have to put a boundary and say, no, we can't please you in this particular area. We have to work with you on this. And, and so you have to be wise and say, what are those areas? Because, for example, in Galatians 1.10, Paul said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So in, in the issue that the Galatians were facing, which was the issue of the book of Romans, which is justification by faith, Paul is saying, if I please those people, if I live to please those, those Judaizers, those people who want to come in and circumcise everybody, I would not be a servant of Christ. But at the same time, in, here in, in Romans, he's saying, hey, there are some people who have scruples about what to eat, what days to eat on, uh, alcohol, that kind of stuff. And in that case, he's saying, I'm working to please them and build them up. So you have to be careful to recognize that there's borders here. There's places where you can't go. The other thing is he says not to please yourself. And we could take that in a, in a negative sense and say, well, I'm going to do it in a kind of an ascetic way where I will do nothing that would please me. I will just be miserable constantly as I seek to serve others. And, and that's not necessarily what he's talking about either. Deny yourself enough to care for the other, but not so much that you're miserable doing it if that makes sense. You see, this is going to take some wisdom, isn't it? As you're trying to wrestle through these things, it's not just here's your checklist and go. So what he says is he's telling us to take care how we take care. Um, it won't be good if you do it in that, that self-denial, beating yourself horrible way. Um, and, and really, there's a psalm that speaks to that. Psalm 40, uh, 6, 7, and 8 says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written on my heart. So here's an, here's an instance where it is pleasing to the psalmist to do these things. So he's not saying don't please yourself in any way. Don't please yourself in a selfish way. That's, that's the idea. So imagine for a moment if we took all that Paul has told us so far about living together this way and imagine, picture what this community would look like. People who are mature in the faith and those who are weaker in it together, both in the same body, each working not for their own good, but for the good of the other. So the, the weak are not making a big stink about the things that they have these scruples about that they don't really aren't comfortable with because they don't want to make their stronger brother or sister stumble in the faith and begin to judge them. The strong not flaunting their freedom in the face of the weaker, but instead bearing their burden, walking with them and, 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 and hoping to build them up and to make them more mature. So the goal of both the weak and the strong is to increase the faith and better the faith of the other. So it, it's, it's asking the question within the context of the church, how can I help you? What can I do for you? To, to not please my, yourself, what can you do for me? Um, here, let me talk down to you so that I feel superior. But instead, how can I help you? What is it that you need the most right now? In that kind of a loving environment where maturity is shown more than taught, the weak can grow stronger by the example set for them. In, in other words, what I'm saying there is, it's not that they're weak in faith only because they lack these essential doctrines. And if we just teach these doctrines, they'll be more mature. Rather, they need to grow in their heart, in their trust of those things, and say, oh, I understand what it means to be justified by faith. I, I see what that, that implies. So it's 
living together in that kind of environment and not only announcing these things, but demonstrating them, living according to them, showing the brother or sister who's weaker in faith, this is what it means. And I'm not doing it in order to come down on you. I do it because I care for you and I love you and I want you to grow. So that gives those, those weaker brothers in, in faith a sense that they are not being judged or ridiculed or, or um, looked down upon, but it, it creates a safe environment for them begin to grow, to begin to experiment and say, well, what does this mean and how do I apply it? And look at how brother so-and-so does. He's, he's, he's walking in faith and he's not doing the things I thought that would lead to. And how is that possible? It's, it's a more realistic and more material way. This is the kind of church environment that, that Paul is calling us to embrace is an environment where we are thinking of the other as better than ourselves. What do you need? What is it that you need? And how can I provide that? That's the kind of environment we're supposed to be looking at. Well, where on earth are we going to get a model of this? Where will we ever find somebody who has ever done this? Um, it, it's hard to, to live this way. Well, the model is in verses three and four. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Christ did not please himself. Now, when, when Paul moves Jesus forward in this example, he doesn't do it just because, well, Jesus is the best possible example I could think of. He does it because he's told us in, in chapter 8, verse 29, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So Jesus pushed forward our, our example because he is where we're heading. He is the type of person to which we are moving. That's what it means to be sanctified, to grow in the image of Christ. That's where Jesus, that's where God is moving us. So when we are told, don't please yourself, but look to your brother, bear with each other's burdens, Christ did not please himself. It's, it's available to you. You can do this because Jesus has done it for you. He set the example, he set the way, and God is working in that direction. So Jesus didn't please himself as it is written. So what proof text is Jesus, or is Paul going to offer up that Jesus didn't live for himself? He's going to look to the scriptures, but remember, the New Testament is not written at this time. It is being written. So the scriptures that they're going to look to are going to be someplace else. He turns instead to the Old Testament. And what he does is, is he we, we need to go back and look at this because what he does with that Old Testament text is really going to orient us. It's, it's going to redirect us so that when we are trying to imitate Jesus here, when we're trying to live like the image which we're moving toward, we'll do it correctly. So what he says is he, he points to the scripture as it is written. Christ didn't live for himself, live to please himself as it is written. And then he points to Psalm 69. And so he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, when he quotes Psalm 69, I, I got to tell you, Psalm 69 is quoted quite often in the New Testament, mostly in the Gospels. But um, it, is, it is widely quoted throughout the New Testament a number of places, including this one. Um, what we need to do is we need to look at a little bit of the context of Psalm 69 so we understand what Paul means when he quotes that section. So this is a Psalm of David, and verses 6 through 9 say this. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who 
you brought, or let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. It has become, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So what David has here is he's got two concerns. First, he's concerned with the people of God. That is those who actually trust in God. Uh, that they might not be maligned because of David's situation, whatever's going on with him. He's let not them be brought into shame and dishonor because of me. So I have a, a burden for your people there. Second, he is so aligned with Yahweh. He is so aligned with the God of hosts that those who ridicule and belittle and taunt God are actually harming David. That's how, how identified he is with God. So the reproach God's enemies lob against him, they fall on David. David, He takes them personally. So when he says the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me, I used to read that and immediately think of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus bore our sins. But what actually is going on is the orientation is a little different. When we take this and we move it forward and we apply it to Jesus, what it is is Jesus bore the brunt of those who hate God. He dealt with all those who opposed him. So Jesus, in, in this understanding, Jesus is the greater David. Um, he lived a perfect life. He didn't have any of the, the, um, the faults that people would attribute to him. So as we identify ourselves with him, we are ultimately not ashamed because David lived a pretty good life, but not a perfect life. The greater David, Jesus, comes and he lives the perfect life. So when we align ourselves with him, we don't have to worry about the things that he's done wrong falling on us. Instead, it's the other way around. The things he's done right have fallen on us. His righteousness is ours, even though temporarily we may bear scorn because of him. There, there, there are times when people look at Christians and just you know, can't stand them, um, generally because they don't understand us. But when they turn against Jesus, they turn against us. And so we temporarily may have to deal with the scorn of others. But ultimately, eternally, we gain from what Jesus has done for us. We gain his righteousness. So when we're with him, when we have aligned ourselves with him, we don't have to worry about us falling into disrepute because of him in a way that ultimately matters. It will be because of him that we're accepted in heaven. And then the reason that um, Jesus bore the reproach of that the world threw at God is, is because the world hates him. Um, in saw, in uh, John 15, verse beginning of verse 23, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus quotes Psalm 69 again. That's from verse 4 of that. And he quotes it in the context of what we just read. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus comes and he says, you hate me because you hate my father. I am so aligned with God that that's how that works. Is I'm more concerned about that. So the two ideas actually go together. This this concern for others, and this bearing the reproach for God. Um, 
So even, even that reproach that um, when we get neglected or belittled, he, he's standing there with us in it. He, he's saying ultimately that will not survive. So he's bearing all of this reproach and this indifference toward us, but also toward God. And the thing is, he's, he's bearing even our reproach toward God because we're not going to be perfect. So even when we fail in that way, he stands there with us. When we're indifferent to the scriptures or ignore them, he's borne that reproach. When, when prayer is an inconvenience to us or used as an incantation to get what we want, he's borne that reproach because we're treating God as something he's not. When we treat God, for example, like a genie and we only pay attention when we want our three wishes, that's reproach. And Jesus has borne our reproach against him. When we shortchange worship because entertain, entertainment competes for its time, we're denying God something that he's, he's worthy of. And we're saying, Lord, you're less than what you should be in my eyes in this entertainment or this whatever it is, is more important. That's bearing the reproach. Jesus bore that for us. When we welcome the weak into God's presence only because we have superior arguments to theirs, which is what Paul has warned us against, even that reproach. Jesus is born for us. And the reason I say that, bring up the weak, that, that when we treat the weak that way, we're, we're approaching God is because what Paul has said so far, uh, Romans 14, 15, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So you look at your weaker brother or sister in faith, you feel superior to them, you ridicule them, you, you taunt them, you roll your eyes at them. And what you're doing is you're looking at what Christ died for and saying, not important. You're bringing reproach on God for that. Uh, 14 verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So this brother who's weaker in faith, when you, when you flaunt your freedom in front of them, what you're doing is you're destroying God's work. You're throwing reproach on God. And so Jesus is born even that. Those two come together. He bore the reproach of the world and the reproach of his people against God. And he assigns to us his, his righteousness. Do you see how we can't, in the book of Romans, get very far from justification by faith alone? It really is the theme that runs through it. So Paul goes on. He says, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. The entire Bible is written for our instruction. All of it is there to tell us what we're supposed to do, to show us. And I think of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, you know, these things were written down so that we wouldn't become idolaters. He's speaking of the Exodus. These things were written down for us. This is to show us all that's going on. And, and what Paul has done in, in giving us Psalm 69 is he's showing us how we should approach that Old Testament, which is not be like David when he slew Goliath, but don't be like David when he slept with Bathsheba. That's, that's not the central issue, is it? In Psalm 69, what did Jesus, what did Paul point to? Jesus as the greater David. Jesus is the hero of that. So these things are written for our instructions. Everything that was written in former days is written for our instructions, including the whole Old Testament. And that the, the fruit of that, what that Old Testament is supposed to bring to us is he says, um, through endurance, that uh, the, these are for our instruction that through endurance, in other words, what he's saying is he's talking about our sanctification, our growing in Christ-likeness, and he tells us that we have to endure. So even as we're struggling to grow in our Christ-likeness, 
that endurance is a gift of God in it. But it is something that we have to do. We're, we're commanded to do that. And how does God do that? How does he bring that to us? He brings it to us through his word. He brings it to us through the scriptures. He, he brings it that we might have some encouragement is what he said next. The encouragement of the scriptures. Um, even then the scriptures sometimes, um, even, uh, I'm sorry, even then the scriptures sometimes themselves encourage us to endure. That sometimes is the message is, is you have to struggle through this. You have to endure. So as we read them and meditate on them and study them and memorize them and hear them, hear them taught. And as we listen to them to preach, as we listen to them preached, the scriptures offer us this encouragement. But the encouragement is to look away from ourselves and look more to Jesus, to look away from ourselves and to think, what does my brother or sister in Christ need? So it's not that we're sufficient in ourselves, but Jesus encourages us because we won't be ashamed. We stand in him with his righteousness put around us. And so we don't have to fear the stumbling in the, in the halting way we do it. Um, even our own faults and our reproach, reproach to God when we don't treat him as what he's worthy of. Uh, as Randy said this morning, behold, we don't behold him. Even then, Jesus is carrying that away from us. And that's what the scriptures, all of the Bible has been telling us, is that we have this encouragement. He says that we might have hope. Hope is the assurance of what we don't have yet. It's, it's the assurance, not the uh, fleeting, it probably will happen or it might happen. It is an assurance of what we don't have yet. So we can look forward to the scriptures point us to Jesus and say he is the one who has borne God's reproach. He's the one who has identified with his people so much that he would carry them along, that they would not be ashamed. And it's looking forward, not to just to us, but to the end state. We have that hope that we will be right before God. They, they offer us that hope and assurance. They're not always easy to endure. Sometimes reading the scriptures is, is a little difficult. I was joking around with Dan this morning about, you know what? You should preach first or teach in Sunday school, do First uh, Chronicles 1 through 5. It's, it's all a list of names, names that quite often you never hear again in the Bible. It's sometimes difficult to read through that, but it's there for our instruction. So continue on that. Hope in Jesus. Hope for the removal of your shame and dishonor. Hope that he is doing this in all the people, weak and strong. That's the hope that we have. So if that's what we have working for us, if that's what's, what's on our side, moving us along, God has written the scriptures throughout history. He's delivered them to us in a, in a very pure form. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand them. He is, he is pointing us to Jesus saying, your sins are covered. Can you live in a way that is not in order to please yourself in immediate short-term fashion? Is it possible? Can the weak work to not cause their stronger brother to stumble by inciting judgment? Can the strong work in such a way that would please their neighbor and strengthen them? Jesus has borne our, our faults, so hope in him. So what is this? That's, that's the model. That's the picture that we're given what will be the results if we live this way? What is our call? What does our call to live like that result in? Verses five through seven. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul prays. 
when, when he's, he gets to the end of this, when he's trying to figure out how do I apply this? How do I help people see where this goes? He prays, may the God of endurance, he's asking God to do this, but he calls God in his prayer, the God of endurance and encouragement. And that's because that's what God offers us. We have to endure. We have to struggle through the hard parts. We, we have to continue to seek what's best for somebody else when they resist us. That's hard to do. We need endurance. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about endurance. But what we're told here is that God is the God of endurance. In other words, he can give you that. That is within his power. It's within his purview is to give you the endurance that you need to struggle on. And, and one of the ways that he's going to give you the strength to, do the, uh, to, to endure is because he's also the God of encouragement. And, and that's what we saw from his scriptures over and over and over again is these are things that God has given us to encourage us. He tells us stories. We were talking before the service began about um, how stories work really well in different cultures. And I, I would argue they work well in our culture, too. He's told us these stories throughout history thousands of years of history of his being faithful to his people over and over and over again. He's given us these stories to encourage us, but he's given us these stories not to encourage us to trust in ourselves because he's had to be faithful to his people because they haven't been faithful to him. So look away from yourself, look to that, and there's your encouragement. God grant can grant you the ability to live in harmony. He can grant us a way to live in harmony because he can grant endurance. It's not easy to do, and he can grant encouragement because we can become weary. But it is possible to live this way. And so what does it look like? Well, then the weak and the strong, the eaters and the non-eaters, the observer of days and those who are all to whom all days are the same, all put uh, the other first and all live in a God-granted harmony. And so does that point to us and say, man, aren't we great people? Look what we've done. I have put up with so much of this. No, where it results, where it rings true is they all engage in what we're doing right now, which is Trinitarian worship. We worship the one true living and loving God. So he says that we do this, that we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To, to glorify God is to announce his supreme worth. Like Ramey said, to behold, to see as marvelous, as beautiful, as stunning, as the Lord of hosts, who is ruler over angels, which could, you know, wipe out all of humanity by themselves, and they fear him because he's so much superior, they, to delight in God's unmatched beauty. It, it means we gather together and we exhaust words trying to describe the strength of God's love for us. We sing to him. We pray to him and acknowledge when he answers. We delight in Jesus for making all of this available to us. We walk in step with the spirit who gave us the scriptures and fills us with that hope. This is what that looks like when, when we begin to live that way. It rings true in the glory of God in worship as we come together. And so Paul ends, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen.